Thank you, colleagues. Good afternoon. We're going to begin today's business with First Minister's questions. And before we turn to the questions themselves, could I invite the First Minister to update Parliament on the COVID-19 pandemic? Thank uh, thanks, Presiding Officer. I will give a brief update on today's statistics. Uh, 1,201 new cases were reported yesterday. That is 5.6% of all of the tests carried out. Uh, so the total number of cases now stands at 176,533. Uh, there are currently 1,938 people in hospital. That is a decrease of 33 from yesterday and 142 people are in intensive care, which is also a decrease uh, of three from the number yesterday. However, I regret to report that in the past 24 hours, a further 82 deaths were registered of patients who had first tested positive in the previous 28 days. And so the total number of people who have died under that daily measurement is now 5,970. Uh, and yet again, I want to send my condolences to everyone who has lost a loved one. Uh, now, due to a hold-up in the processing of data from yesterday, I don't yet have the figure for the total number of people who have now received the first dose of vaccine that will be published as soon as possible. However, from the information I do have, I can report that around 60% of people over 80 and living in the community have now had the first dose of vaccine. Uh, we're on track to complete first doses for over 80s by the target of the end of next week. However, we anticipate that the vast majority will actually have been done by the start of next week. The over 70s will start to be vaccinated next week as well, and all of them, along with those who are clinically extremely vulnerable, will have had the first dose by the middle of February. As we make good progress with vaccination, we also see signs of progress in suppressing the virus. We will later today publish the up-to-date estimate of the R number, which suggests that it is now below one. Um, that is not unexpected given the decline in new cases that we have seen recently, but it is very welcome and it provides further evidence that the lockdown restrictions are working. That said, case numbers do remain very high and our NHS remains under severe pressure. The number of people in hospital with COVID, for example, is still approximately 30% higher than at the peak last spring, although we are starting to see a welcome stabilisation in those figures as we see from the numbers I've reported today. It's therefore vital that cases continue to fall, which is why we have already confirmed that lockdown restrictions will continue until at least the middle of February. Um, as everyone is aware, we are also considering and implementing further measures to help keep the virus under control, both now and in the longer term. They include tougher travel restrictions, and we will set out uh, more proposals on that in the coming days, and of course, further ongoing improvements to our test and protect system. However, for the moment, the single most important thing that all of us can do to protect each other and keep the virus under control is to follow the current rules. Uh, put simply, that means that we all must stay at home as much as possible. We should leave home only for essential purposes. Those include caring, responsibilities, essential shopping, work that genuinely cannot be done from home and essential exercise. And all of us should exercise responsible judgment on what is really essential and what is not. Uh, we shouldn't have people from other households in our houses or go into theirs. And of course, on any occasion when we do require to be out of our homes, we should follow the facts advice. Face coverings uh, when out doing, for example, essential shopping, avoid places that are busy, clean hands and surfaces, use two metre distancing uh, if talking to people from other households and self-isolate and get tested if you have symptoms. Uh, all of this will help us uh, continue with the progress we've seen in the last couple of weeks. 
Uh, it will protect ourselves, our loved ones and our communities and help, of course, protect the NHS. So my advice to everybody continues to be stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. Thank you very much, First Minister. I would encourage all members who wish to ask a supplementary question today to press their request to speak buttons. And I call on Ruth Davidson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. We all want the vaccination programme to work as quickly and efficiently as possible so that restrictions can be lifted. But there is genuine concern across Scotland at the pace of the rollout. We know that more mass vaccination centres, already set up elsewhere and due to open in Scotland soon, will make a big difference, and that's very welcome. We're all hoping that they go to plan. But so far, the First Minister has sought to blame the slow vaccination rate on prioritising care homes. We asked for, for care homes to be prioritised way back in November, and it is the right thing to do. But it's not an excuse for the slower rollout across the general population. GPs know it, and the First Minister knows it too. One Edinburgh GP wrote to us this week to say, I helped deliver thousands of vaccines over the years, and I know that different systems are used for care homes in the general public. Another GP confirmed, these jabs are sat there, but they're not getting to us. This argument that the focus is on care homes rather than the over 80s is a red herring. It isn't a choice between the two. These are different cohorts being, being vaccinated by different staff. First Minister, are you telling these GPs on the front line that they're wrong? First Minister. Uh, no, but I do think Ruth Davidson is, again, mischaracterising uh, the position to some extent. Uh, I will make no apology for the fact that we did prioritise care homes first, uh, not just because that is what the JCVI uh, recommended we do, but also we know these are people that are most vulnerable. And we see again in this second wave of the virus, concerns building about outbreaks and uh, numbers dying in care homes. Uh, we have now virtually completed uh, vaccination of care homes, around 95%. There will be efforts to get that percentage up, but given that in any cohort, particularly with frail older people, it is unlikely to reach 100%, we have effectively completed the vaccination of older residents in care homes. And I think that is important. I was reading, I think, in the Health Service Journal yesterday, concerns about the target for care homes being missed in, in England. Now, we are uh, on track, though, to not just meet, but I would hope exceed our targets for the other cohorts that we are now vaccinating. Around uh, half a million people have been vaccinated already in total. Um, in terms of the over 80 population, as I said today, uh, that is now around 60%, perhaps uh, slightly above 60% when we see the uh, total uh, figure, uh, which will be published as soon as possible. Uh, that uh, is on track, well on track for the target to be met of the end of next week. But I would anticipate, based on the current pace of progress, that the vast majority of over 80s will have been vaccinated with the first dose uh, by the beginning of next week. As many people, and I've been inundated, as I'm sure all members have this week, by people in the over 70s uh, age group contacting me to say uh, that they've had their appointments. The over 70s will start to be vaccinated next week. I know uh, people in the under 70, the 65 to 70 uh, age group that have also had appointments to be vaccinated next week. Uh, so together with those in the uh, clinically extremely vulnerable group, the over 70s and uh, those will be vaccinated by the middle of February. What we are doing is building a vaccination programme that has pace, absolutely, but a sustainable pace where we are using the supplies we have in a way that ensures we can meet uh, and, if possible, exceed those targets, but that we are also focusing, firstly, on those that the experts say are most vulnerable to getting seriously ill and dying from this virus. And that's the approach that we will continue to take. And let me take the opportunity to thank those, including GPs, that are working so hard to deliver this programme. Ruth Davison. 
But the GPs are right, because vaccinating in care homes and vaccinating in the community are two different systems, and we are able to do both quickly and at the same time. So there's no excuse for falling behind. And the SNP has fallen behind, however much the First Minister protests, because we've shifted targets, we're behind the rest of the UK, and on Sunday, vaccinations hit the lowest number yet. So if the problem isn't prioritising care homes, let's look at what it really is. GPs have been shouting about it for weeks, they need the vaccine to be delivered to their surgeries more quickly. The Scottish Government can call up deliveries overnight from the distribution centres, but are only sending out weekly deliveries to GPs. The head of GPs at BMA Scotland has asked if family doctors can be allowed to order stocks directly in order to help speed up this process. Will the First Minister let them? First Minister. Uh, we'll continue to discuss with those on the front line how we better streamline uh, and gather the pace of this programme. I think governments across the UK will sensibly do that. In terms of the, the health board uh, ordering system, uh, although the structure of our NHS is different in terms of the, the population size uh, covered by the entities ordering the vaccine, it's not particularly different from the clinical commissioning groups that are doing that in England. Uh, Andrew Buist, the head of GPs, somebody who has understandably raised concerns in recent weeks about the, the speed of getting supplies uh, to GPs, I think at the end of last week uh, made the comment that he thought great progress had been made last week on vaccinators and supply. He also said he thought the Scottish approach uh, was the right one and now we were all cracking on uh, with getting it done and that is uh, I think the view that is reflected. But we will continue to liaise literally on a daily basis with those on the front line to see whether there are problems that we need to overcome to make sure that this programme uh, continues uh, apace. And just to be, to be clear and, and set this out, we, are, we, we pretty much finished care homes uh, in terms of older residents in, in care homes um, and that is really important because hopefully over the next few weeks uh, as we go through the rest of the second wave that will reduce the number of people in care homes that otherwise might have died from this virus. Now that uh, achievement in pretty much almost finishing older uh, residents and care homes hasn't uh, been achieved, uh, certainly in England. I'm not so sure about the up-to-date position in Wales uh, and Northern Ireland. So this is not about choosing one over the other anymore. We've done that one. Yes, there'll be some uh, efforts to, to get from 95% to as close to 100% as possible. And now we are uh, going through the over 80s. And I think we will uh, exceed the target we set for the over 80s, where the vast majority of those will be done by the start of the week rather than the end of the week. And, you know, the over 70s, I, one of my own family members has an appointment uh, who's in the over 70 group uh, in the middle of next week. Uh, somebody else I know who's actually under 70 has an appointment later next week. So we are going through this now because of the efforts of those who are planning the system and though the efforts of those at the front line who are delivering the system. I think it's good progress um, and we'll continue to work every single day to make sure that it carries on that way. Ruth Davison. Well, without further action, supplies getting to GPs too slowly can, will continue to be an issue. And I don't think we heard any answer as to whether they'll be allowed to order themselves there. In fact, one North East GP told us, we have the ability to vaccinate about 500 patients a day. Other GPs in the area share our frustration. In Fife, a GP practice told its patients, we do expect to receive further supplies to administer the second doses to the over 80s, but at the moment, none beyond that. And this is having a real effect on patients, because yesterday I was contacted by an older lady in Ayr who was delighted that both she and her son-in-law had been called to the mass vaccination centre at the Citadel Leisure Centre. Her concern was that her equally elderly and clinically vulnerable husband had not been called for a vaccination. And she phoned her GP and I quote, they told me that people who'd been receiving shielding letters would be vaccinated at the practice, 
but they had no doses and did not know when they would get any. They would be in touch when they received supplies. She completely understands why the clinically vulnerable are being asked to go to their local doctor and not a mass vaccination centre, but she asks why younger, healthier patients are getting jabs before doctors helping the more vulnerable are even being given supplies. I had no good answer for her. Does the First Minister? First Minister. So the clinically extremely vulnerable um, are in the same category uh, recommended by the JCVI as the over 70s and they have been getting appointments uh, to go for vaccination starting next week. Now I can't guarantee and nor should I try to guarantee that somebody over 70 without clinical vulnerability might get uh, the vaccine in one part of the country a day before somebody who's clinically vulnerable gets it in another part of the country. That is what happens when you have, as we have now, a two-week window in, whether, in which we're going to do everybody in these groups as recommended by the experts based on clinical vulnerability. Uh, and the over 80s, uh, you know, if, if it is the case that uh, we're not getting supplies quickly enough to do those, why is it that we are very confident that we're going to exceed the target of completing the over 80s uh, well within uh, the, the target date that we set of the 5th of February? Uh, we are not doing uh, the vaccination programme exclusively through GPs. Rightly so, because if we did, then GPs uh, would, uh, I think, uh, be too diverted from caring for people with other needs. So GPs are doing uh, patients where there is a good case for that, uh, and others are being doing, done through mass community uh, vaccination centres. My own parents uh, are being done at a, a vaccination centre that's actually closer to their own home than their GP practice uh, is. So that's the, the mixed uh, approach that we are taking rightly so. But I come back to the key point here. We've completed care homes. Uh, we're ahead uh, of certainly some other parts of the UK in that. Uh, we are now 60% through over 80s, well on track to exceed the target we've set for that. And next week, the next uh, cohorts will start and we are well on track to meet the targets for that. And every single day, we will seek to overcome and address issues that those in the front line might be experiencing. But this programme is going well and it's going well uh, thanks to the efforts of people across the country who are working hard to ensure that it is. Ruth Davison. The problem from the First Minister is that these aren't isolated incidents. She insists that everything is going well. But let's look back at what GPs on the ground are telling us. Earlier this week, a family doctor in Glasgow was blunt. The bottleneck is not people, it is vaccine supply. So let's look at the supply chain. Since Tuesday, the Scottish Government has had around 1 million vaccines available for use. It is up to NHS Scotland to get them to health boards. At this stage, and a quote from the SNP's own delivery plan here, next day delivery can be done to health boards. But getting the vaccines from the health board's vaccine holding centres to GPs, quote, normally happens weekly. We're six weeks into the vaccine delivery plan, we're three weeks into the community rollout, and throughout that time, GP after GP has been expressing their frustration at supply issues, all of which the First Minister continues to brush off. They just want it sorted out. When will she do it? First Minister. You see, I'm, I'm not brushing any of these concerns off. I'm answering in detail around what is happening. And I think Ruth Davidson might have more of a point here if we were way off meeting the targets to get through all of these population groups. But we're not. If anything, uh, we are uh, on track to exceed uh, those targets in terms of the vaccine uh, quantity and the numbers that we are, are vaccinating in each uh, category. Now, in terms of supply, and you know, 
I'm not going to go into detail about what we covered last week about you know, us uh, publishing the expected supply, the UK government demanding that we took that out of the public domain, but being quite happy to brief these figures uh, through spin to the media. So I've said to my officials, actually, regardless of what they say, I think we'll just go back to publishing the actual supply figures uh, from next week so that we all have uh, transparency around that. And and on the, uh, the figures that Ruth Davison's quoted, as I said to her last week, if you extrapolate those figures from, uh, the, to the UK, then yes, of course, we have allocations of doses. We draw those down. They come into health boards and go to GPs. Um, of the doses that have come into Scotland so far, more than half, uh, way more than half, are already in the arms of people, and the others will be going into the arms of people over the course of the coming days. This allocation we've got, we've got to plan for how we uh, use that to allow us to vaccinate all of the groups that we have prioritised within the timescales that we have set. And I come back to the key point here. I know everybody across the country, all of us, without exception almost, want to get this vaccine as quickly as possible. And I know GPs and other vaccinators want to do it as quickly as possible. But we are on track in terms of the targets we've set uh, and we will continue to make sure that that continues as we get this vaccine to as many people in the adult population as we can, just as quickly as we can. Thank you. Question number two, Jackie Bailey. Presiding officer, can I also send my condolences to those who have lost loved ones due to COVID? Since the beginning of the pandemic, the World Health Organization has told countries to test, test, test. Yesterday, once again, the First Minister's own advisor, Professor Devi Schreider, couldn't be clearer. The best way to stop the spread of the virus, to avoid rolling lockdowns, is by testing, finding contacts and isolating them. Scotland has a daily testing capacity of 65,000 tests. We could have done 2 million in the past month alone, but we've only used 32%. We've known for some time that the First Minister's symptom-led approach to testing is not enough to control the virus. South Korea, Germany, other countries have been using PCR tests for months to find asymptomatic carriers. Even now in England, nearly one in every 100 people are tested daily for COVID-19. Can the First Minister tell the Chamber what the equivalent figure is for Scotland? First Minister. I, I don't have that figure to hand. I'll get that figure. But can I say to Jackie Bailey, if the uh, central proposition she's making to me here um, is that England have done so much better than Scotland, why are Scotland's rates of the virus so much lower than England's uh, right now? Now, I don't think this should be some kind of competition. We're all working really hard to control this virus and get rates as low as possible. But Scotland consistently uh, throughout this pandemic has had rates that are too high, in my opinion, but lower than uh, other nations in the UK, um, certainly England and more recently Wales. The numbers of people dying are far too high and none of us uh, should be comfortable uh, with that. But we are uh, working hard to suppress the virus and we are using testing uh, in an appropriate way to do that, expanding that as we go through. Uh, the numbers that are quoted here, and I've tried to explain this week after week, uh, they are for people with symptoms. And the reason that that uh, quantity is not used every day is that the levels of the virus are thankfully uh, lower than uh, they would be if that uh, volume was being used up to capacity. We're using asymptomatic testing now much more widely uh, through care homes, uh, NHS staff. We're using uh, community asymptomatic testing all of which is helping us uh, to get these rates uh, of the virus down, which is uh, so crucial. So I 
Uh, we'll never stand here and say that there's not more we can do, that there's not things we should learn, that there's not uh, you know, other advice we should take. You know, I don't stand here and speak for Professor Schroeder, but I speak to Professor Schroeder uh, often. And yes, she advises a range of things. She's been you know, a voice of wisdom throughout this. But you know, without speaking for her, I also think she uh, thinks that many of the things we're doing in Scotland right now are the right things, um, and we need to keep at them and improve as we go. And that's exactly what we will do. Jackie Bailey. Thank you very much for that response, but presiding officer, let me help the First Minister out with the figure, because it is one in a hundred people tested daily in England. In other countries in Europe and the world, they have mass testing programmes. There are many, many more people tested daily. In Scotland, that figure is one in every 250. Even in the last week, Test and Protect averaged only 20,622 tests a day out of a capacity of 65,000. Nearly three quarters were actually repeat tests, people who had already been tested. So let's look at another crucial part of the current system, which is contact tracing and self-isolation. In the week ending 17th of January, Test and Protect failed to reach over 850 positive people within 72 hours of their test. At the start of the month, it was as many as 1,625. And when people are asked to self-isolate, there is no follow-up, there's little support, they get a text, that's it. In some parts of the world where proper support is on offer, as many as 95% are managing to follow self-isolation rules. So can I ask the First Minister, can she tell us, what is the equivalent figure in Scotland? First Minister. Uh, well, I'm happy to give equivalent figures. I can you know, provide them later on. I, I think it's really important that we engage in the issues here. And there's two issues um, that I think are really important to take up here. Jackie Bailey says it's terrible that uh, there was only you know, 20,000 tested, tested as opposed to 50,000. This is symptomatic testing. If that 20,000 figure had been 50 or 60,000, that would have mean that our rates of the virus were three uh, times what they actually are. Uh, it is a good thing that those with symptoms uh, are fewer, so that there are fewer people with symptoms coming forward for testing. That means that we are succeeding in starting to suppress the virus. And that is just a really fundamental point that I think has to be uh, understood. And, you know, if it is the case that, you know, England's uh, greater uh, number per 100 population being tested than Scotland's is the be-all and end-all, then you would expect England's virus rates to be lower than Scotland's. But they're not. They are significantly higher than Scotland. So I, I'll never stop trying to listen and learn about how we can do these things better. But the idea that we're somehow just getting it all wrong doesn't actually bear out when we look at our relative position uh, compared to others. And on uh, self-isolation, Jackie Bailey is just downright wrong on this. When you are contacted to be told to self-isolate, if you agree uh, to have your details passed on to the local council, you get a follow-up call uh, to, to triage uh, your situation, to find out if you've got particular needs. We've given councils additional resources so that if somebody needs practical help in addition to the financial help through the uh, self-isolation support grant up to and including accommodation that is available. We will uh, very shortly set out some further plans to extend uh, the support that is available to people self-isolating, but it is simply not true to say that there is no support available for people. So, you know, these are uh, the facts of the situation and we'll continue to work hard to improve as we go. 
Jackie Bailey. Um, I'm always grateful when the First Minister says she's prepared to listen and learn, because exactly the point I'm making is that the testing capacity that is there should be used for asymptomatic testing as well. And I don't think she's currently doing that. And can I say to her, I'm bringing the real experience of people who are self-isolating into the chamber. They're telling me they're getting little support. And she knows herself, a third of the people who applied for the self-isolation grant didn't get it at all. But presiding officer, again, I didn't hear an answer to my question. So I'm happy to help the first minister out again. Only 18% of people in Scotland are able to follow self-isolation rules. That's fewer than one in five people. So it's a pity the Scottish Government's performance can't be matched by the First Minister's spin. Because 11 months into this pandemic, this Government has been slow to test, slow to trace, slow to support people who are self-isolating. And whilst the vaccine gives us hope, experts tell us that COVID will be here for some time to come. To lift current restrictions and not up, end up in a third wave and another lockdown, we need a functioning test, trace and isolate system. That is not what we have in Scotland today. Last year, community testing pilots uncovered hundreds of asymptomatic cases in just a fortnight. But instead of the promised wide-scale rollout, the government is still only in the planning phase. If we're going to get this virus under control, we need mass testing in all of our communities. So can the First Minister tell me, when is this going to happen? Or are we going to be back here in a few weeks, quoting the same expert advice, asking the same questions, and with more lives lost? First Minister. To listen to Jackie Bailey, you wouldn't think we actually had the lowest levels of COVID in the whole of the UK in Scotland. Uh, but they are too high and therefore we will continue to do more. We did do uh, pilots of asymptomatic testing before Christmas. We're about to roll out a number of community asymptomatic uh, initiatives. Uh, we're about to uh, do asymptomatic testing in more industrial settings. I checking with the health secretary, I'm not sure, there may even be one in Jackie Bailey's own constituency. There's a testing centre in Jackie Bailey's uh, own uh, constituency, or maybe a mobile testing uh, unit in her constituency. So we use testing uh, appropriately, we will continue to do that and we will continue to extend that. It frankly does a real disservice uh, to the people who are working uh, so hard in Test and Protect to say it's not functional. It is functional, it's functioning well, and they have my gratitude for that. Thank you. Question number three, Willie Rennie. The First Minister did claim that we were slower than England at first because we did the hard-to-do care homes first. That argument does not wash. According to a new survey, England and Scotland are now in the same place on care home vaccination. But the gap is still around 140,000 for everyone else. That's how many people we would have had the vaccine by now if Scotland had kept pace with England. And every day a vaccine is left in a vial is another day that a person is left exposed to the threat of this deadly virus. And with 100,000 lives lost, we can't afford slippages like this anymore. So it's not care homes. And the First Minister says it's not to do with the ordering system. So why are we so far behind England? First Minister. 
we're on track not just to meet the targets we've set to vaccinate groups of the population, we're going to probably exceed those targets. 60% uh, of uh, over 80s already, the vast majority I anticipate by the start of the week, all by the end of next week. Over 70s, clinically extremely vulnerable, some under 70s will start to be vaccinated next week. We set these targets uh, and we're meeting those targets. And, you know, I, I'm sorry that uh, people don't uh, agree that we should have prioritised care homes uh, early. Um, I think we were right to do that. And I don't know what survey, I don't know what survey uh, Willie Rennie is quoting, but if England has now caught up with us in care homes, that's good news. But the fact is we were ahead in terms of care homes and now we are uh, getting through the other groups. So if we were missing these targets, uh, I could understand uh, the criticisms that are being made. Uh, we are putting in place a programme that is uh, working through the cohorts as clinically recommended, is doing so appropriately and sustainably, uh, and we'll continue to do that. At no stage did I say that we should not prioritise care home first. Let's get that straight. What we are saying is the First Minister should not use the care homes to hide the fact that the Scottish Government have not kept up pace with the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, yesterday, Professor Linda Ball criticised the lack of preparation for the second wave. She went on to urge the Government to get ready now, increase PCR testing to catch more people with the virus. Last week, I reported that the government had failed to use one million gold standard PCR tests since Christmas. This week, it's even worse. The number is now 1.2 million tests not used. The government is sometimes only using a quarter of the capacity. Isn't it time to turn that around? I know she doesn't want to listen to me, but will she at least listen to Professor Bald and use these tests? Why is the First Minister ignoring the advice of such a professor. First Minister. Uh, I, I know I have got huge respect for Linda Bald. I listen to her very closely, as I do Professor Schroeder, because not only do they give good advice, they don't mischaracterise uh, the position uh, that is actually the reality. Um, I, I don't believe that Willie Rennie really misunderstands the approach to testing, but I think he continues to sort of pretend he misunderstands it in order to bandy about figures like one million unused tests. We use the PCR testing capacity principally for symptomatic cases so that they can be uh, caught and uh, diagnosed and then put into self-isolation with their contacts uh, contacted to isolate as well. And the reason that uh, the symptomatic cases are not uh, meeting the capacity we've got for that is that the levels of virus are thankfully lower than that. But we are extending the use of PCR testing to asymptomatic uh, uses, just as we are using lateral flow devices, uh, community projects, industrial projects, uh, asymptomatic testing amongst care home staff, amongst uh, visitors to care homes, amongst NHS staff. We are piloting approaches for asymptomatic testing uh, using both PCR and lateral flow devices in schools to help us as we uh, hopefully transition soon to get children uh, back to school. So we're doing all of these things um, and we're doing it in a way that makes sense, taking uh, account of the very, very good advice that we get from people like Professor Bald and Professor Shridhar. Thank you. Question number four, Patrick Harvey. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Whether we think it's essential travel or not, the Prime Minister is visiting Scotland just days after the number of deaths from COVID in the UK reached the grim milestone of 100,000. It's among the worst death rates in the world. 
Across both governments and the whole political spectrum, we share a deep regret. We also share responsibility. While Boris Johnson claims that everything that could have been done was done, the First Minister has acknowledged that mistakes have been made, including sticking too closely to the UK's position on international travel. Does this regret go further? Have there been other choices where the First Minister accepts what seems clear to me, that the desire for a Four Nations approach held us back, whether it was locking down too late, opening up too early, in the economic response or in the test, trace and isolate systems? First Minister. Um, so, firstly, the milestone that was passed in the UK for numbers of people dying this week is, is grim, and it should be something that uh, lives with and haunts and uh, you know, is imprinted on the, the minds and hearts of everybody uh, who has been a decision maker in this. Um, I am very clear that I and my government have tried every single day to do everything we possibly can, but nobody, uh, and of course the, the death rate in Scotland, far too high, is slightly lower than it is uh, in other parts of the UK or as, uh, in the UK as a whole, but it's still far too high. Uh, so we try to do everything every day, but nobody can look at these figures and conclude that every day we succeeded. And that, uh, I think, demands a frankness uh, from all of us. Now, I've... Uh, already reflected on some of the things if I could turn the clock back I would do differently now some of those is applying the benefit of hindsight so it's you know other people can judge whether it's fair to call these things mistakes but in addition to that mistakes will have been made so the things I agonize about are you know did we lock down early enough uh, with relative rates of infection, we locked down, although at the same time, in terms of the relative stages of infection, probably slightly earlier in effect than, than England did. But was that early enough? Uh, you know, we, of course, uh, had constraints in terms of the economic packages that required to be put in place. Um, I agonise over border control. Should we have done more, uh, even when uh, the UK government didn't want to? And I think that's a lesson we need to learn and apply in the weeks to come. So, you know, I'm not going to ever stand here and pretend that we did everything that we possibly could and that we didn't get anything wrong, because I don't think that is the case. Um, but I, I think it's really important that we learn as we go with this and we make sure that where we did think we get, got things wrong, we put that right in future. And I will try to do that. The final point I would make is that while I can reflect and offer, as I just have done, thoughts on things that I wish we could have done differently, it's not ultimately for me or people like me to mark our own homework. That's why in the fullness of time, uh, a full public inquiry into all of these issues is necessary and appropriate. Patrick Harvey. Another regret that the First Minister expressed this week was in a message she gave yesterday about transphobia within her party and promising a zero tolerance approach to this prejudice in the future. Following that statement as a party leader, does she think the same message and the same commitment is needed from her as First Minister for the actions and inactions of the Scottish Government? Does she regret that promises made to trans and non-binary people to make their lives easier, to improve their health care and uphold their rights were broken, and that transphobia in Scotland has grown far worse as a result of the Government's failure to act? And what now is going to change? 
First Minister. Well, I actually think this is something all of us have a duty to speak out on. I've got a duty and a responsibility to tackle transphobia if it exists in my own party. I've got a duty as First Minister to make sure that the Scottish Government uh, protects and enhances the rights of trans people. But uh, I, I don't think there is anybody across this chamber in their own organisations or in terms of Scottish society as a whole uh, can sit back and, and rest on their laurels here. This is a, a really important issue. I, I'm a lifelong feminist. I understand the concerns that women have about abuse, misogyny, the erosion of women's rights. I face, like women across this chamber and across society do, uh, vile misogynistic attacks every single day of my life. But as a woman, uh, I know the threat to my safety is from abusive men. It's not from trans uh, women. Uh, I recognise the concern uh, that abusive men will exploit trans rights to harm women, and we've got to address that. These are debates we must have openly and honestly, but we can never allow any debate to become a cover for transphobia. Transphobia is wrong. It's as wrong as racism. It's as wrong as homophobia. Trans people have the same rights as any of us to feel safe, secure and valued for who they are. And I, as First Minister, as leader of the SNP, and just as a citizen of this country, will stand against prejudice, discrimination and bigotry wherever I encounter it. And that's not about political expediency or otherwise. That's a simple matter of conscience. And I think that's the approach everybody should take. Question number five, Stuart McMillan. Thank you for sending also to ask the First Minister what consideration the Scottish Government is giving to providing funding to small businesses that are classed as essential and have no access to sector-specific support, but whose profits have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and the advice to the public to stay at home? First Minister. Uh, we recognise that many businesses that are classified as essential and therefore able to remain open both under the current and previous restrictions will still have struggled over the past year. Uh, the £30 million Local Authority Discretionary Fund uh, was established precisely to help plug those gaps in financial support for businesses where there are challenges inherent in implementing a national policy. And I would encourage those essential businesses experiencing hardship as a result of reduced trade to reach out to the Local Authority for support through this fund. Jim McMillan. I thank the First Minister for that reply. And I've been contacted by a local ironmonger, a, a small independent business, who can't access funding from the strategic, business, sorry, strategic framework business funding due to being classed as essential, and also can't access the Council's discretionary fund as it's already closed. It closed within uh, a couple of days due to it being very much oversubscribed. The business is struggling to survive due to the huge drop in footfall, as people are quite rightly staying at home and following the rules. The business also can't compete with the, the larger businesses in the area. So, what additional support uh, can therefore be made uh, made available to uh, my Greenock and Inverclyde uh, constituent, and also there will be many more across Scotland who are deemed as essential but are now financially struggling to survive due to the pandemic. First Minister. Well, obviously, I'm not going to comment on individual cases when I don't know all of the details of them, but I do appreciate that financial support has not yet made its way to every business that is experiencing ongoing disruption. Uh, the discretionary fund was designed to get financial support to businesses where uh, there are challenges in adopting a national approach, so some businesses will fall through gaps, uh, for example, because they uh, are classed as essential, therefore they are not required to close, but their trade has been severely impacted. Uh, so we are 
working with local authorities to make sure this money gets uh, to businesses as quickly as possible, but also actively exploring opportunities to widen access to the fund further. I know the Finance Secretary, uh, once she's uh, got today's budget uh, out the way, I'm sure we'd be happy to have further discussions um, about just how we can ensure that the funding we provide helps as many businesses as possible. Thank you. Question six, Graeme Simpson. To ask the First Minister how the Scottish Government is helping flat owners affected by dangerous cladding. First Minister. Well, I know uh, how much anxiety has been caused uh, to homeowners who are affected by this issue through absolutely no fault of their own. Uh, we've been working with industry bodies, homeowners and others to try to resolve the situation for homeowners. Uh, we established a ministerial working group on mortgages and cladding. In fact, it met most recently just this morning. Uh, recent consultations on guidance produced by the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors uh, and also the Scottish Government have shown uh, that there is agreement developing on the buildings that are most at risk and this will help clarify which buildings are affected and then allow us to take action and target support accordingly, uh, focusing on the greatest need and of course securing best value for taxpayers. Graeme Simpson. Thank you for that answer. Uh, last year, the UK Government set up a £1 billion building safety fund the Scottish Government was given £100 million as a result of this last March. And you may well ask, what's happened to that? The answer is nothing. Scottish building regulations and guidance still do not ban combustible materials on the outside of high-rise or other high-risk buildings, in contrast to England and Wales. And thousands of people are stuck in potentially dangerous flats which you struggle to get mortgages for. Now, as the First Minister said, that this government did set up a ministerial working group on mortgage lending and cladding. The last minutes uh, for that I could find were from April last year, uh, so it's very good to hear that they met this morning. The First Minister is well, of, well aware of this issue. She's had constituents complaining about it, so when is she going to unveil her solution and when is that £100 million going to be spent? First Minister. Well, I think on the question about the money, if uh, Graeme Simpson had listened to my earlier answer, he would uh, know the, the process we're going through. We need to establish uh, where there is greatest need, the buildings most at risk, and then make sure that that support is targeted appropriately in a way that addresses need, but also ensures value for taxpayers. And that is the process uh, that is underway. In terms of the wider uh, points, we're currently considering the responses to the consultation on the Scottish advice note on external wall cladding systems and intend to publish uh, the advice note later this year and the Minister for Housing will keep Parliament updated as he has done up to now. I do know through constituency uh, experiences uh, how uh, anxious a, a situation this is for people affected but that's why it's right that we do this properly to address those who are currently uh, living in buildings affected by uh, cladding right now but also to make sure that through uh, building standards in the future we don't repeat uh, these situations. Thank you. Question 7, Sarah Boyag. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what measures the Scottish Government is putting in place to catch up with the reported six-month backlog of cervical screening tests and whether priority will be given to people who had previously had an abnormal test. First Minister. 
Cervical screening, which of course had been uh, paused in the early stage of the pandemic, resumed on uh, the 30th of June last year. During July and August, participants who received more frequent screening because of a past result and who hadn't received their invitation or reminder due to the pause in screening were prioritised and sent their invitations first. Invitations for routine screening began to issue again in September and uh, appropriate infection control measures are in place so people feel confident about attending. Uh, the programme, of course, as many programmes do, continues to face challenges as a direct result of the pandemic. However, diagnosing and treating cancer early remains a priority. And of course, the government has provided uh, just under a million pounds to support uh, capacity um, in sample taking, for example. And this was agreed uh, following extensive consultation with health boards and primary care. Sarah Black. Can I thank the First Minister for that response? Um, the reason I wanted to raise this issue, First Minister, is because I have had constituents in touch very recently who are worried because they have had a delay to their access to cervical screening tests. And because it's already three years since their last test, they are now deeply concerned. So does the First Minister agree that ensuring that cancer tests, such as cervical screening tests, does need to be a priority now and also when the NHS is remobilised, as it's a strong preventative measure, which will relieve pressure on our NHS in the long run, but will also ensure that identification of potential life-threatening cancer is not delayed so that my constituents are not put at risk or put under deep worry and strain at the moment. First question. Uh, so I agree with all of that. And can I say, I think Sarah Boyack is absolutely right to raise these concerns in the chamber. This is uh, a concerning situation for anybody who's waiting uh, for uh, a cancer screening appointment uh, or uh, a diagnostic appointment or, or treatment. And uh, I think we all uh, understand that. Um, in terms of cervical screening in particular, some of what I'm about to say here will apply to uh, all of the, the cancer screening programmes. Um, when the very difficult decision was taken to pause uh, these screening programmes uh, last spring. Um, and people may recall at the time that the former chief medical officer set this out. The decision that was taken to pause in order that, rather than to continue at a slower pace with the programme, so that people uh, would not miss appointments. If they were due an appointment, then that would be rescheduled when uh, the screening programmes started again. It's right that since uh, they have restarted, uh, those uh, most at risk have been prioritised, which I think is one of the issues that's been raised. And of course, work is ongoing to get through the, the backlog as quickly as possible, uh, given the, the ongoing challenges around infection prevention and control. Uh, but it is absolutely vital that cancer uh, symptoms uh, and cancer uh, diagnostics continue to be prioritised so that we can get people into as early treatment as possible. And that remains a priority for the whole NHS, notwithstanding the pandemic conditions that they're working in. Thank you. I should highlight we have a very large number of supplementary requests. We won't go through them all, but we'll see how many we do. Sandra White to be followed by Jamie Green. Sandra White. Uh, thank you very much, President Officer. Uh, the First Minister will be aware of the takeover of Devons by Boohoo. However, this deal does not include the shops. Hundreds of employees will lose their jobs, and the Glasgow store within my constituency is also closing. Can the First Minister advise what support will be offered to these employees and what action can be taken to support our high streets and businesses that have been impacted negatively by the pandemic and also the rise in online shopping, which has left empty once lucrative retail spaces? 
First Minister. Well, firstly, can I say how concerned I was to hear of the situation with Debenhams. Um, I know how distressing uh, this situation will be for uh, those who work there and for their families. Uh, the Business Minister has already spoken with the administrators for Debenhams to offer every support possible, and we are providing support, as we uh, always will, for any individuals affected by redundancy through the PACE initiative. Uh, more generally, we're providing grant support uh, for retail businesses required to close, uh, and of course, uh, one-off uh, top-up grant support has recently been announced for retail businesses depending on their rateable value. Uh, we're also working closely to develop uh, with stakeholders to develop a retail strategy to help the sector deal with the situation it is facing. Um, considerations for the strategy will include the impact COVID has had on retail, the response to increased online trading and how the sector may have to adapt to meet those challenges as we start to recover from the acute phase of this crisis. There's no doubt retail is one of the most uh, badly affected sectors and will require uh, our ongoing support for some time to come. Jamie Green to be followed by Daniel Johnson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, First Minister, I was contacted last week by Aaron Cancer Support Trust to raise concerns that many of their patients have been missing vital uh, cancer treatments on the mainland due to the unreliability of the Aran ferry. Of course, the replacement vessel is now three years late. They've described the situation there as critical. This week, a number of 80-year-olds on the island had their COVID vaccination cancelled because doses failed to arrive on the island. This simply isn't good enough. We need reliable transportation to our island communities, and they deserve the same standard of health care as anyone else in Scotland. First Minister, why aren't they getting it? First Minister. Well, island communities, people living in island communities absolutely uh, deserve the same standards of health care as uh, anybody living in mainland Scotland. I'm very happy to look into the particular issues that have been raised uh, with recent uh, disruption to the Arran Ferry, both in terms of uh, hospital appointments, but also in terms of COVID vaccination and get back to the member as quickly as I can. Daniel Johnson to be followed by Richard Lyle. Thank you, Presiding Officer. According to weekly Public Health Scotland figures, NHS Lothian has the lowest vaccination rate out of every health board in Scotland, with just 7.3% of residents having received their first dose. Within this area, Edinburgh is the worst local authority for vaccination, with just 4.9% vaccinated. That's almost half the Scottish average. Yet, according to the Edinburgh Evening News, last week it emerged that NHS Lothian had given vaccinations to volunteers at a food bank, despite care home residents and staff still waiting inoculation. The Health Board claimed that this was because Scottish Government guidance on prioritisation is unclear. So can I ask the First Minister, has the Scottish Government been in touch with Lothian Health Board regarding their apparent slow rate of inoculation? Does she have an explanation as to why they're lagging behind the rest of the country? And is the Health Board right in claiming that guidance is unclear on prioritisation? First Minister. Um, I thought the Health Secretary was about to combust there uh, the suggestion that she's not been in touch with uh, NHS Lothian or other NHS boards. I can assure the member there is ongoing daily uh, contact with all health boards about the vaccination programme as well as about uh, other matters. Any health board that thinks, in fact any council, any organisation who thinks guidance on any aspect of our COVID response is unclear should let us know and we will look at that and if that is the case we will seek to, to rectify that. I am not uh, aware of there being uh, any lack of clarity in the the guidance around uh, vaccination priority, but of course, if, if there is a, a perception that there is, we will uh, address that. Uh, the Public Health Scotland uh, figures, of course, uh, the weekly figures, which uh, I assume uh, are what are being quoted, uh, are of course accurate, but they are uh, up until uh, a few days ago. So the 
position will have moved on. We are now publishing, uh, Scottish Government is now publishing a daily breakdown and in due course Public Health Scotland uh, will publish daily uh, breakdowns as well. So I would simply caution against uh, putting too much store on uh, figures that are for three or four uh, days ago. But nevertheless, uh, we want not just the vaccination programme across the country to proceed at pace, but for there to be uh, that pace in all parts of the country. And where there is any suggestion that any health board is behind the pace, uh, the member can be assured that the health secretary and Scottish Government officials are following that up uh, very assiduously indeed. Thank you. Richard Lyle to be followed by Alexander Stewart. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister if the Scottish Government will address the concerns of police officers in regards to vaccination timescales for their profession. First Minister. Well, can I say firstly that I absolutely understand uh, the desire of police officers, teachers, uh, other professional groups who have uh, you know, direct contact with members of the public to be vaccinated as quickly as possible. I uh, absolutely understand and sympathise with that. But we are following um, a, a clinical prioritisation uh, list right now that has been recommended because uh, following that clinical prioritisation is the best way to protect the most vulnerable and to reduce uh, the burden of this virus in terms of serious illness and, and death. So any time that we were to uh, say that a group out with that clinical prioritisation was to be uh, prioritised uh, beyond where they are right now, we would, it, by definition, be deprioritising uh, groups with greater clinical need. Now, an important point here, uh, two important points, as briefly as I can. Firstly, there will be many police officers uh, in those clinical priority groups, uh, and uh, that will be people with underlying health conditions or uh, people over 50 that are in that initial JCVI priority groups. So there will be many included. Um, and the second point is the quicker we can do that first JCVI priority group, which we are aiming to do by the start of May, the sooner we get on to uh, the wider population. Um, and remember, this is a whole adult population vaccination programme, which will, as quickly as possible, uh, include everybody. Alexander Stewart, followed by Pauline McNeill. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, connections for key workers and key deliveries are vital during the pandemic. But when chaos on the roads is caused by ice-related closure of the Queen's Ferry crossing, this has an enormous knock-on effect. The £1.3 billion bridge was opened to great fanfare as both an engineering marvel and a new icon for Scotland. But the closures could have been avoided as the problems with falling ice were highlighted at the design stage. First Minister, what urgent action will the Scottish Government put in place to find a proper solution to allow this flagship bridge to be used as it was intended? First Minister. This flagship bridge is used as it is intended, and it's a, a huge success. Uh, bridges of similar designs in other parts of the world uh, also suffer occasionally from extreme icy conditions. I'm not sure uh, what the member is suggesting, that we can either stop ice accumulating on a structure when there are sub-zero temperatures, or we should just let traffic go across it, regardless of the risk of ice falling off it. These are rare, thankfully, occasions, uh, but the bridge is a great success, and we will continue uh, to work uh, with the operators of it to make sure that traffic flows across it uh, without disruption on as many days of the year as possible. Polly McNeill to be followed by John Mason. 
First Minister, similar to Stuart McMillan's question, newsagents, convenience stores and food takeaway based in Glasgow City Centre get no financial support at all for reasons the First Minister is aware of that Tier 4 restrictions reduce the footfall in the city centre. Glasgow City Centre Small Business Alliance, who have also written to you, First Minister, say they have no option but to close because they are not bringing in enough sales, and if there is no help, many will go to the wall. Will the First Minister keep me and other Glasgow members informed as to how the government will proceed on this point? As Glasgow City Centre, I am sure she appreciates, already has huge challenges, and it will likely require a specific recovery plan, given its strategic role as a driver of the Scottish economy. First Minister. Mm -hmm. uh, there are ongoing discussions with the Cities Alliance about some of these issues, which will be important for the medium to longer term. Uh, more immediately, I know the Finance Secretary will want to cover issues of business support in uh, her budget statement this afternoon, so I won't uh, tread on to that territory right now. But uh, in the immediate sense, uh, Glasgow City Council already has a share of the £30 million uh, discretionary funding, uh, which, as I said to Stuart McMillan, was designed uh, to ensure that businesses that fall through the gaps of the other uh, sector-specific or, or other schemes uh, can have access to funding, and some of the businesses uh, that Paul McNeill talks about, uh, I think, fall into that category. And we'll continue to work uh, with councils, uh, with others, to make sure that we are doing as much as possible to fill those gaps. But that discretionary funding is already available to councils, um, and councils should be seeking to get it to businesses as quickly as possible. John Mason, to be followed by John Scott. Thank you very much. The job retention scheme has been extremely valuable and uh, welcomed, certainly in Scotland and across the UK, but we do not yet know if it will continue beyond April. This afternoon, we have the Scottish budget, and I wonder if the First Minister can say if the job retention scheme does not continue, would that have a negative impact on the Scottish budget and the Scottish economy? First Minister. I think if the job retention scheme is withdrawn prematurely, while we still have any degree of of COVID restrictions um, putting uh, constraints on the way businesses are operating, then that will be bad for Scottish workers and bad for workers across the UK. And then, yes, there will be a knock-on effect to the economy and indeed to the Scottish budget. So my uh, appeal to the Chancellor would be to ensure that that scheme is extended for as long as it is necessary. Many other countries uh, in other parts of Europe have already made similar decisions. It would be wrong and deeply damaging for it to be withdrawn uh, before we are out of this uh, acute phase of, of the crisis. We saw so unemployment figures uh, this week, uh, which are, uh, I, I think there is perhaps a sense that the, the job retention scheme um, is preventing right now unemployment being much higher uh, than it is and that gives us uh, a sense of what might happen if that is withdrawn so I hope that doesn't uh, happen but perhaps when we're talking about learning from mistakes and I uh, will seek to learn from any mistakes this government has made but the uncertainty that was caused by the Chancellor uh, saying that the furlough scheme was going to be stopped and then at a very very last minute extending it actually cost jobs so some clarity now that that scheme will extend for as long as necessary, I think would be welcomed by businesses across the country. John Scott, to be followed by Bob Doris. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. I'm declaring an interest as a shielded person and further to Ruth Davidson's questions. Can the First Minister explain to Parliament why GPs in my constituency who vaccinated their over 80s and nursing home patients some weeks ago cannot now get vaccines to vaccinate their shielded cohorts 
and when will they get these vaccines? First Minister. Uh, GPs and the vaccination centres uh, that will be doing the vaccines of over 70s and people who are clinically vulnerable in the shielding category will have those supplies to vaccinate everybody in this category by the middle of February. That's the target we set. That is uh, the target we are on track to meet. It is being done by a mixed approach, uh, the overall vaccination programme, some through GP practices and some through uh, vaccination centres for the reasons I think I set out earlier on. But everybody in those categories will be vaccinated with the first dose by the middle of February. And that's the target we set and the target we are on track to meet. Bob Doris to be followed by Alex Cole-Hamilton. Presenting officer, I have been informed that Abbeyfield House Care Home in Springburn are consulting a potential closure and that it is possible if you close around the end of May 2021. I understand there are currently 14 residents. Families have contacted me raising understandable concerns. I am in contact with the owners of the care home, social work and the care inspectorate. Does the First Minister agree with me that moving vulnerable residents to a new care home at any time has inherent risks? let alone during the ongoing pandemic? And how can the Scottish Government work with all involved to do all they can to prevent this from happening? First question. Well, the interests of residents must always be the paramount consideration and their care must be delivered uh, as safely as possible where necessary. And uh, I agree uh, with Bob Doris, this should always be a last resort, but where necessary, uh, that must include a safe and supported transition for residents to alternative care environments. Uh, I'm happy to ask the Health Secretary to engage with the Health and Care Partnership in Glasgow on the current position in this particular care home to ensure that the needs of residents are being met um, and should it be necessary to seek assurances that any transitions are managed uh, safely. Um, and uh, the Health Secretary, I'm sure, will be happy to liaise directly with Bob Doris. And Alex Cole-Hamilton. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. The First Minister's announcement of new border arrangements and advice against booking international travel came as a surprise to Edinburgh Airport, who only learned about it while watching the lunchtime briefing on TV. This has effectively closed down the aviation sector, and they have signalled it could well lead to further unplanned redundancies in my constituency. The airport do not oppose these restrictions, but are concerned that they are being brought in without the support packages offered to their sector by other countries who've gone before us. So can I ask the First Minister what additional support will be offered to our airports in light of this, and will she commit to working closely with them to determine a route out of these measures once conditions allow? First Minister. Look, this comment is not directed at Edinburgh Airport, who, like all airports in the aviation sector generally, are having a torrid time. And I said yesterday, specifically, we are seeking to work with the UK Government so that collectively we can ensure additional support for airports and the aviation sector. Uh, but this bit is not directed at Edinburgh Airport. I, I can't honestly believe that anybody uh, was surprised yesterday when I said that we should not be planning overseas travel for the foreseeable future. I've been saying that repeatedly for some time. And, you know, the clue really is in the fact that we are living in a global pandemic. And as we suppress the virus here, as we uh, continue to roll out the vaccination programme, it becomes more and more important that we mitigate against the risk of re-importing the virus, possibly new uh, and faster spreading, even more dangerous strains of the virus into the country. Um, you know, I remember saying uh, last year that we thought we had virtually eliminated the virus in Scotland 
uh, over the summer and then it was re-imported. I think I got criticised at the time for claiming that by Willie Rennie. Genomic sequencing has since proven it. So we've got to learn that lesson. If we want to get any semblance of domestic normality back over the next few months, uh, then we have to make sure that we are uh, not taking the risk of bringing the virus back into the country. And I don't believe me saying that yesterday came as any surprise to anybody who's been listening to any of this over the past weeks. Thank you very much. I'm very conscious that we're resuming at two o'clock with the budget, so I'm going to draw First Minister's questions to a close there, and I suspend this meeting.